Hey there, Pastor John here from Journey of Life Lutheran Church, and you have reached this thing we do called Dig Deeper. We take the uh, subject matter of the sermon and we kind of dig a little deeper in it. This, The format of this uh, video or podcast uh, allows a different kind of flexibility. Sermon's a different kind of thing. I do have to say that I'm very sad about something, though. Very sad. You know, last week I had the uh, whiteboard cam and I could draw on the whiteboard as part of the, the uh, Bible study, which really, just for me personally, I'm like a drawer. And so that was uh, great for me. And I tried to hook it up this week and something ain't right. Uh, in fact, I even got a check disc warning on my uh, computer, which I will let it go through the check disc later. But I wanted to get this uh, Bible study out now. So we're going to dig deeper into this this uh, passage, which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. And in this passage, Jesus, uh, he, he has just, what he's just, before we get to this passage, what Jesus has been talking about is about the law, which is all the requirements of the Old Testament. Like the, basically you can think of the Ten Commandments as the law, and then any little minimum and fraction of those. And then uh, Jesus says, we uh, don't get to relax those at all. And then he says uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's pushing on us a little bit with regard to how we're doing following these rules, these laws. And he's going to go over things like uh, murder and uh, lust, divorce, um, taking oaths and retaliating against people. So that's kind of what we're looking at. I am going to, uh, first of all, I think that I'm going to, um, let's see, I think I'm going to take my ugly mug off the, uh, there we go. You can quit looking at me for a while. I don't need you looking at me. <laughs> uh, so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. We're going to do it in the English Standard Version. I have pulled that up on a uh, website called BibleGateway.com. It's a great uh, website, great Bible website. And uh, I'm doing that because I have this super powerful Bible program called Logos. And for some reason, my software doesn't actually read the text out of the Logos window, which is a little annoying because I would love to take you deeper through Logos into some things, but it's not available at the moment. Let's see if I can't figure that one out. It's always something. Here we go. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. Jesus is speaking. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand causes you to sin, if your, excuse me, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, 
do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the footstool, for by the earth, excuse me, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. And if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So that's, uh, that. actually I read a little further than I intended to. So uh, we're going to go back here and we're going to just uh, put up, I'm going to put up Matthew chapter 5 uh, verse, what do we got up there? Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 to 26 is what we have up there right now. And uh, what it says is, you have heard it said to those of old, do not murder. This, this is the one we're going to kind of dwell on and, and have most of our thoughts on uh, today. You have said you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, this is what Jesus said, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. Now, uh, before we go on, I want to, the first thing we need to do is uh, figure out this idea of anger. And I want to let you know that there are two different words, two main different words in Greek for anger. And the one that Jesus has used is orge, and the other one is thumos. And here's the difference, because this is important. And it's important because what Jesus, Jesus is not saying, don't ever get angry, because that's like, well, anger is a human emotion. In fact, Jesus got angry. Uh, I don't know if you remember, he was angry at the Pharisees one time. He got so angry that he uh, made a whip and started driving all the money changers out of the temple. So that, that, um, that inner kind of flash of wrath kind of thing, that's a human emotion and it happens. And that's called thumos. Now, let me just read to you uh, from, uh, this is on the screen if you're watching. It says thumos, that is wrath, it's not translated anger, is to be distinguished from orgy. In this respect, uh, that thumos indicates a more agitated condition of feelings, kind of an outburst from that inward indignation. While orgy represents a more settled or abiding condition of the mind, frequently with a view to taking revenge. Orgy is less sudden in its rise than thumos, but more lasting in its nature. Thumos expresses more of that inward feeling, the more active emotion. Thumos can end up in revenge, but it doesn't necessarily do so. Its characteristic is that it's that kind of anger that blazes up quickly and subsides quickly. Whereas uh, orgy is that sort of simmering, burning anger and wrath at somebody else. So, when Jesus is talking about don't be angry, he's not trying to tell us uh, don't, you know, he's not talking about an emotion. He's talking about the the idea of orgy is that that sort of ongoing uh, anger at someone else, which is sort of a distancing from the other person. As uh, as a human, you made them an object of your anger and and something to be gone after in some way instead of a human. And so Jesus gives these two examples. Uh, let's go back to the passage. And the first example is, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and remember your brother has something against you, drop your gift and go at the altar and go. First, first, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
this is why Jesus, <laughs> this is part of the reason that Jesus made the religious leaders so angry is that he was telling everybody that the rules were not the first thing. In fact, if you remember back to Jesus' uh, first sermon in his hometown, uh, he was preaching along and then he was trying to open people's minds up to the idea that God loves everybody. And he pointed out to them that uh, in the time of Elijah, there were many lepers. And the only leper that got healed was a Syrian general named Naaman. And there were many widows who were starving. And the only widow that uh, was fed miraculously by the prophet uh, at about this time was not a Jewish widow either. And so even in the Old Testament, if you actually read it, you see that uh, the Jewish people are, they may have been the chosen race in terms of the um, ancestry of the Messiah, but they were never chosen as more loved by God than anyone else. The whole story of Jonah is about God sending the prophet Jonah to the city of Nineveh, which was a city hated by the Jews because they had been so violent in their uh, war making. And God sends Jonah the prophet to Nineveh to preach there because God cares about them. And so one of the things Jesus has always been preaching about is that God cares about everybody. And Jesus brought this truth back to people. And another truth he brought back to people is that the law is there to serve us, not to be our master. And so in this instance, the people who are in the middle of the religious duty of the offering, which funds the temple, right? Uh, Jesus says, listen, if you're in the middle of the religious duty of your offering, and you remember that you have a relational issue, drop the offering and take care of the relationship. Why? Because people are what's important. People are what's important. Now, the second thing, the second example Jesus throws in here, it says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest he hand you over to the judge, etc. Right? So the way this works is if... Um, if somebody else believed you owed them money or whatever, you had wronged them in some way that needed to be righted, uh, you could uh, you could go to the court and they would send a soldier with you to go uh, get the accused person and bring them to court. And of course, once you are the accused person and the soldier is bringing, to, bringing you to court, your situation is very tenuous because you've already been for all intents and purposes, arrested, right? I mean, you are now under the physical restraint of the soldier. So uh, the situation is urgent. And Jesus says, if that's the case, you got to come to terms quickly with your accuser. Figure out how to solve this thing now because you are walking into a situation which will uh, move beyond your sphere of control. So here's Jesus and he's, he's, uh, it looks like, it looks like he is giving, giving, uh, new laws, different laws, raising the bar. And in a way he is, and in a way he isn't, that's what we're going to see. Cause one of the things that, uh, one time Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? And he gave what is actually a standard answer, it turns out. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so all of these commands, when Jesus pushes on them, he's pushing them to where they are the fulfillment of the basic command the law of love. And so if you're looking at the command about uh, you shall not murder, right? That's kind of based in that anger kind of thing. But Jesus takes the negative and, and bends it around to the positive because the law, the core of the law is actually love your neighbor as yourself. And what he, and this idea, the idea that you can 
fulfill the law of love your neighbor as yourself simply by not murdering them is a pretty low bar. In fact, it's even, you're still directed the wrong way. You're looking at how you can live your life with some sort of minimalistic standards you're meeting instead of letting God get a hold of your life and reorient your life so that love of neighbor isn't just a, a, a following of some rules, not doing things that are prohibited to doing things that are required of you, but that love of neighbor becomes your goal. And these things simply provide you with some more information about how to go about this central goal of loving your neighbor. A couple more things about this anger passage while we're here together. Uh, one, one thing is that uh, an observation is that whether or not the anger is justified is irrelevant. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, you know, think about whether or not that thing that stands between you is, is, uh, is justified or not. And if it is, go make up with them. He just says, listen, drop your, drop your offering and go make up with them. And in the scenario... Uh, with the uh, walking, uh, with the accused uh, walking toward the judge under the power of the soldier, it, it seems almost like this is a justified uh, piece of. Uh, it, se it seems that the situation is actually justified, uh, but you still need to deal with it uh, and find out a way to make it up and make it right before you get there. So, this is what we've been talking about. Drop your gift at the altar and go. Another thing about Jewish teaching uh, in the way that Jesus taught, there's this uh, particular literary device called hyperbole, which means overstating something to make a case, picking an extreme example. Uh, so it's possible here that Jesus is using hyperboles. Like if you, if you are offering your gift and you suddenly remember you have this thing, you need to drop your gift and go take care of it. And, you know, he used this, this in other ways. He said, like, uh, the very famous one, uh, why do you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye? Now, that's hyperbole. You probably will never actually try to take a speck out of someone else's eye when you have a log in your own eye. But just because it's hyperbole doesn't mean it's not true. It's just not literal. And so maybe the literal situation that that there's some rift between two people and one person suddenly remembers it uh, when they're offering their gift, even if that literally would never happen, that doesn't mean it's not true. It's just an extreme case. And maybe Jesus is, is talking like, for instance, uh, an alcoholic uh, who, when he picks up a bottle of whiskey in temptation, he doesn't just need to put it down. And so if you're at the altar offering your gift and remember someone has something against you, well, that means you've already not dealt with it right away, right? No, you need to do something drastic. If you actually find yourself in that situation, you need to do something drastic. So like the alcoholic, if he picks up a bottle of whiskey uh, in temptation, he, he needs to do more than just put it down because he's going to put it down and pick it up and put it down and pick it up and then he's going to drink it. He needs to do something drastic. He needs to pour it down the sink or go pour it down the toilet or go throw it in the lake. Something like that. He needs to do something big, something unequivocal in order to redirect that habit, right? And so that's what Jesus is doing with this. He's, he's chosen these very large examples to see that it's not just about meeting that minimum requirement of the law to not murder because in terms of fulfilling the law of love, not murdering is a pretty low bar. No, you need to make you need to make love of neighbor the very first priority in everything you do. And the and the truth is that this is always how it's been. It's always how it's been. Let me take you back to an Old Testament prophet, uh, the book of Hosea. And here's what the prophet writes. I desire love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea, Hosea tells us that it, it's all these other things, the offerings, the Ten Commandments, everything, those are all a structure to help us be loving. They're not like 
where we use though use them to escape being loving let's go back to that altar instance and just and and we'll keep using that if if uh you can imagine a situation where two people are uh, at odds with each other and one of them says well i'd love to work this out right with you right now but i have decided that at three o'clock i'm bringing my offering in to the temple and so we just have to wait till later Jesus says, no, that's like a religious excuse for not doing what you really need to do, which is take care of the relationship. Because the rules, all those other rules grow out of two. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So if you're using one of those other rules to justify not loving, you are using it incorrectly or using it exactly not the way it's intended to be. Let me take you uh, into the book of Proverbs. We'll do go there and see what it says. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. So again, it's 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 much more a relational thing. And, and the, the fulfillment of these laws and obligations is a, uh, is a symptom of the underlying relationship. You don't use it to get out of the underlying relationship. Here's another proverb. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Listen to that again. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So we're seeing it. We're seeing it right here. We're seeing it in what Jesus does with these commandments. He takes them and he says, listen, you are missing the whole point. If your idea of the fifth commandment, do not murder, uh, is, well, you're keeping it if you're not murdering. You're missing the whole point because that is that commandment is an outgrowth of love. If your whole idea of do not commit adultery is, well, I haven't had sex with someone I'm not married to, that's a very low bar because uh, you can ask any married person about what they expect in the fidelity of their marriage, and <laughs> it's going to be something a little bit more than just, I expect my spouse not to sleep with anybody else, right? I mean, that's a pretty minimalistic view of marriage. And in fact, uh, to be more serious, that is not at all what marriage is about, that, that sexual union is simply the physical piece of the entire union of husband and wife when they, they come together to to point their arrows of love toward each other for the rest of their life. And it, and it, and it happens in a million ways, a million times, a million places. And that uh, the sexual part of that is only a little piece of it. An important piece to be sure. Uh, but to say that I am a faithful husband or I am a faithful wife simply because I have not slept with anyone else uh, is uh, doesn't even meet human expectations, let alone the scripture's expectations. So, uh, by the way, uh, 2017, it's the 500th year anniversary since Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, questioning the sale of indulgences. And you'll be hearing more about that sometime, I'm sure, but not today. But I do have a Luther quote for you. Uh, here's a Luther extends this idea of um, the positive aspect of the commandments. In fact, he does this in his small catechism. When he explains the commandments, every single command, of course, starts out with a prohibition. But that prohibition is the low bar thing. Um, Thou shalt not covet. Uh, doesn't mean just don't covet your neighbor's stuff. It means you help him keep his stuff. Um, Thou shalt not murder doesn't just mean don't murder somebody it, because it grows out of love. It's about protecting your neighbor's life and property and things like that. So Luther also takes this uh, into the political sphere as well. And he says this, sacrifice without reconciliation is the same as bringing on war and murder and bloodshed, and then paying a thousand guldens to have masses said for the souls that were killed. I don't know. Let me let me just say that again. Luther says this idea of bringing your sacrifice to the altar, God's altar, without reconciling with your brother, uh, 
because there's another place in, in uh, John writes that you, no one can say they love God if they don't love their brother, because if you don't love your brother whom you have seen, there's no way you can legitimately claim to love God who you haven't seen. So love is the thing, and bringing your sacrifice to the altar without the reconciling love toward your brother is like making war on people and then paying the priests to say masses for the people that you just killed. It's ridiculous, right? That's what he's getting at. And St. Augustine uh, kind of said it this way in terms of the whole life being integrated. He said, everything that we think and strive for must agree with what we confess with our mouth. Uh, that seems pretty good. Everything that we think and strive for must agree with what we say, right? I mean, that's we, we, we all say that, right? Uh, your actions speak louder than words, right? We do that. So Jesus is driving us to toward the inner condition of our souls, the inner condition of our souls. And in fact, he talked to the Pharisees were uh, not uh, when I was growing up and I heard about the Pharisees. I always thought of kind of like a uh, um, a vaudeville villain, like snidely whiplash t t uh, tying Penelope to the train tracks and just laughing at sheer delight of doing evil. That's not who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were a sect of people who sought extreme righteousness. And my understanding is that they sought extreme righteousness because they wanted God to bless Israel. Israel was an occupied country. They had been conquered by Alexander the Great in, uh, shoot, when was that? It was the three or four hundreds BC. I think it was about 350 BC, actually. And then in the 100s BC, uh, the Romans came through and conquered them. And right now, at the time of Jesus, they are, uh, the land of Israel is occupied by the Roman forces. And so the Pharisees uh, wanted to curry God's favor by living righteously, but they concentrated so much on outward righteousness that they lost, or many of them lost, and definitely had a danger of losing the core of where all these rules come from, which is the heart of love and compassion for other people. Here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 6. Verses 23 to 26. You blind Pharisee, first clean out the inside of the cup and the plate. So then the outside will also be clean. So he's getting at that. He's getting at the idea of the inner life being uh, the place from which our true following of God comes. It comes from the inner life. So let me say this to you. It's, it's a question of what real repentance is. Um, Jesus said those who would save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will save it. And so real repentance is that, that turning away from the life of the I, basically. Real repentance moves life from me to we. It's not that you become a doormat for other people. It's just that uh, your life becomes not all about you. It's about you and others. So in terms of the, the way this works in our spirits, those who want to keep their own life ask for the minimum requirements, and then they figure out how to work their own will around whatever that bar is, right? There was one time, and Jesus uh, encountered a guy who said, uh, Teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. And the guy was very happy. He said, I've done all these since I was a baby. That's fantastic. He thought he was in. He thought he actually had lived a life that was uh, fully meriting God's favor on his own, on account of his own goodness. And if you look through Jesus' life, whenever people feel like they might actually be meriting God's favor on account of their own goodness, he pushes them. He's always like, one more thing, one more thing, pushes them a little harder. So this man, who thought he had kept the commandments well enough to please God, like, um, 
to earn his way into heaven. Uh, Jesus uh, knew him, and he was a rich man. So Jesus said uh, in his instance, what he needed to do was to sell everything and give his money to the poor and follow Jesus. And the man went away sad. So, when we concentrate on the letter of the law, that leaves us in control. It's some hoops we have to jump through, and as long as we jump through those hoops, we can live our own me-centered life. What Jesus is doing here is trying to move the needle of our life, not to a whole different way of looking at our lives. Those who commit to repentance and the ways of God out of love in response to what Jesus has done, they don't look for what the minimum bar is. What they want, what they're looking for God to do in them is to transform their heart. Paul writes, don't be conformed, conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So those who commit to repentance seek wholeheartedly to fulfill not just the letter of the law, but the spirit and the guiding motivation of the law, because all of these laws have that guiding motivation of love going on behind them. That's the great commandment out of which all the other commands flow. And if fulfilling some other command causes you to put aside the great commands of love for God and love for neighbor, then you put aside that other little command or rule or whatever uh, because you don't use the secondary rules to violate the primary rule. One time Jesus was asked uh, by the Sadducees this question, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? This is in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40, by the way. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And really, on, these, on, on this one command, everything hinges. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is it, because God loves people. So to love God is to love the people that God loves. So the second, to love your neighbor as yourself, grows out of the first. And notice it's not instead of yourself. It's to place equal value on every human being, on every person. In fact, it's to love all of God's creation, really, but especially to put equal value on every person. That's the command. And that's the command that all these other things grow out of, that Jesus is pushing on. So, if you look at the subjects and objects in this text, the anger, the lust, the divorce, the re retaliation, all of them violate the concept of loving your neighbor as yourself. You shall not murder, low bar, because you can still be a complete jerk to your neighbor without murdering them, right? You shall not commit adultery, low bar, because you can be the worst spouse in the world and just not sleep with someone else. So Jesus is pushing us to, to look at our lives not in light of these low bars, but in light of the law of love. And he brings this up in another way, too. He says, uh, here's what he, he, he says, you blind fools. Now, that's interesting because he's calling people fools. And he just said, anyone who calls his brother a fool will be liable to the fire of hell. And here Jesus says, you blind fools. But... Um, for what I think is this, is that um, Jesus, th there's a way you can speak which denigrates the other person and, and makes you out to be 
the one above the other person. And I think that's kind of what, uh, when you call your brother a fool, according to that Matthew uh, 5 passage we just read, is getting at. There is also a, a way you could call someone a fool in a teaching context, because you want them to see how foolish they are being. And that, I think, is what Jesus does here. He says, you blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? And so uh, taking that and moving it back to the commandments, which is greater, the rule about anger or the person about whom that rule was made in the first place? Let me read to you uh, just a little section here from a commentary on Matthew, uh, and you can get the reference from it off the screen if you want to look on the video. Here's what it says. And this is an important thing to think as we're moving uh, on into the deeper part here. Are not the attempts to temper the antithesis in the history of interpretation a quite human reaction to this? Not only are you not to kill, but you are not to want to kill. You are not to permit the impulse to kill to be in you. That impulse that if you were to follow it would actually kill. So this commentator is noting that we always want to temper this and, and we need to read this in a way that doesn't allow us to blow it off because what Jesus says He's trying to be very, very serious here. And he's trying to push us into two places. What he's, he's saying here with these things is the laws, those laws, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Those are not the thing. They are actually the framework to guide our growth toward love. Just like you stake and wire a young tree, the law can guide us as we grow. But the goal is to grow beyond the law so that our lives are not just a minimalistic fulfilling of some written code, but they are a pedal to the metal, living out the character of Christ who loves us. Let me give you one more uh quote from that commentary. As is often the case with Jesus, we also have here, oh, this is, a, this is him writing about the hyperbole again. We also have here a categorical, hyperbolically exaggerated exemplary demand whose goal is a new basic attitude towards one's fellow human being. So again, he's saying, Jesus, what he's trying to do here is not get us to follow these commands, but, but take these commands back to their root of love, to reorient our whole life. And if you think about them all, um, anger, lust, divorce, oath, retaliation, they, all of those, he pushes on all those to the point where, um, where it's extreme. And I want to, we're just about done here, so so stick with me for a moment because I think there's two lessons that uh, need to be brought to light here, and they're the same lessons that are from uh, the message on Sunday, and that's this: the law, uh, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and, and all this this stuff, all the other rules or whatever, they kind of they kind of serve two functions in our lives, and we see both of those functions in this. Um, text that we've been reading. The first one is actually to kind of drive, not kind of, to completely drive us to despair. Uh, it, it, think about that command about lust. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better to enter eternal life maimed than to have your whole body thrown into hell. Well, if you cut off every part of your body that causes and participates in sin, what's going to happen? You're going to be dead, right? So what Jesus is, is pushing us to is the idea that following the law 
trying to follow the law as a set of rules that you might actually be able to fulfill and therefore earn your way into God's grace is simply barking up entirely the wrong tree. It's the wrong road. You can't, you can't get where you want to go by going faster on the wrong road, right? So that's what Jesus is getting at. Because remember that um, th those verses from the Old Testament even, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and things like that. What Jesus wants to do, that he does whenever anybody thinks they're actually fulfilling God's demands, like on some way where they can stand up pro uh, proud of themselves in the presence of God for, for living this fully perfect life, he needs to knock that out of us because that's the performance mentality. And, and that's the world's mentality is the performance mentality, whether or not it's pretty enough or rich enough or successful enough or whatever. And, and the idea of being enough, of following whatever rules enough, it promises us, it promises us peace. It promises us a sense of success and it promises us pride, but it's a promise it can, it can't deliver on because we can never actually make it. And so when Jesus, um, when Jesus tells people things that just push them and push them and said, you know, cut, pull your, gouge your eye out and cut your arm off. He's, he's pushing us so that we despair of the road of performance because he doesn't want us on the performance road. God has never wanted us on the performance road. So thing one is to get off the idea that you're going to come toward God, be acceptable to God, even find peace in your own heart through the idea of performance, because it's an infinite road that you'll never reach the end of. So that's one, drive us to despair. Once you get there, then you go, well, okay, I'm despairing. Now what? What do you do? You ask for God's mercy you look to a merciful God who sent his son to die for us and whose son rose again from the dead to show us his power over death itself, death itself. And you hear the good news that all your sin is forgiven in Jesus Christ. And in fact, you are adopted into God's family as God's son or daughter. And that's amazing because what God is trying to do is get us out of the performance mentality altogether because that's not the way it works. That's not the way he works. We do that to ourselves and he's trying to move us away from it. That's the gospel. Can you imagine, I, I don't know how many of you uh, watching or listening to this might uh, be a parent, but can you imagine if uh, your child thought that your love for them depended on their performance? Now that's not to say we don't have high expectations for our children and want them to do well in every area of their life and even more to become good people as they grow up. But the idea that our love for them depends on, I don't know, their grades or whatever, that's horrible. That's just horrible. That, 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 uh, that's not good parenting. And, and if you're doing that, uh, you are perpetuating the I you what you're if you are actually doing that to your kids if you're like withholding your love and affection uh, because of their performance you are setting them up to never feel happy and peaceful their entire life because what you are teaching them is that they gain love by performing and you can certainly there is a a, a part of the world that you gain success by performing well certainly but you don't want to tie your love into that because that is going to leave people vulnerable. Vulnerable. If if you if if the idea of you of your being able to interact with and and commune with the divine with God uh, had to do with your performance, you could never have a good night's sleep. Because you'd always wonder, what if? What if it's not enough? What if that wasn't enough? I didn't try that hard today. I wasn't nice enough to that one person. I drove by that homeless person instead of stopping. You'd be left forever without peace. And peace is the one thing. Well, I don't want to say one thing. Peace is a major part of what God wants to give you. When Jesus rose from the dead, every time he appeared, he said, peace be with you. Peace be with you. 
peace be with you. The Gospels, uh, not the Gospels, excuse me, the epistles, the letters like Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, they're all either start with or end with this greeting, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because that's what we're trying to, what God is trying to move us away from the performance mentality altogether. Whatever you think you need to have done, whatever performance you think you need to have done, or whatever you have done that you think might um, permanently exclude you from the righteousness, peace, and joy of the kingdom of God, God, God has like taken care of that. That Jesus died, it's done, whatever uh, you think might be holding you away from God. It's not there. It's taken care of. Jesus took it the cross. It's completely gone. Okay. So now, once you receive God's grace and peace, once you, once you say, you know what? I trust that God loves me. I trust that whatever I think God might be holding against me has been taken to the cross with Jesus Christ and it's over. And I trust God's love as a father now. I believe that and I trust that. And I believe in his power because Jesus, he raised Jesus from the dead. Once you are there, then and only then are you safe to turn back to the commandments. Because the commandments do in fact reveal the character of the God whom now you want to serve, not out of a need to perform, to earn, but out of grateful love. You realize that God loves you and you turn around and you say, now I realize this great love, how should I then live? That's where the commandments come in. How then should I live? Well, don't kill, but go all the way to the other end of that, where not only are you not killing people, but you're defending them, you're defending their reputation. You are the person that people can turn to because they trust you because you love them and their life, which is the opposite of killing. And the, uh, all, all, all along uh, from there on down, every commandment becomes not for you a hurdle to jump over because that whole system has been trashed and broken to pieces. It's not a hurdle to jump over. It's a point on your compass to direct your uh, fulfilling of your life of love toward other people. So that's where we're going with this. That's where we've gone with this at this point. I want to give you uh, three questions to think about in case you're using this with a small group. Uh, let me put them up here. Here we go. Number one, how can I discern when is the right time to stick to the rules and when is the right time to put them aside? Number two, what dangers lie in the criteria that I came up with in number one? And number three, where am I skirting the issue of my spiritual life by minimally obeying the letter of the law? In other words, where are you... Uh, where are you not dying to the love of God? Where are you not dying to the love of God? Where are you holding on to your own and trying to just do the minimum what you think will make God happy or at least be okay enough with God? Because that's where you need to repent. That's where the Holy Spirit needs to work on your heart and move you, move the needle of your heart and of your life toward Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's take a moment and pray. If you're driving, don't close your eyes. Father, uh, we all slip back into the performance mentality. Some of us have lived there all their lives. Uh, some of us, some of us have experienced the really, it's kind of a hell to think that. Our acceptance by you or our acceptance by others uh, depends on being enough of whatever we think we're not enough of. And that's one of the things you came to free us from. And so I want to ask for people who are listening to this that you would free them from that. Help them see, help, help them see that uh, the road of, perform of acceptability through performance is a dead end and trying to go faster and further on that road will not take them where they think it will go. Help them see your love in the death of Jesus 
and your power in the resurrection of Jesus. And help us all see that and, and see the great love on display there so that our hearts and our minds are blown away by your love for us and for the people around us and all creation. So that instead of looking at a set of rules as sort of minimal behavior standards, we look at the rules, the Ten Commandments and the others, as revealing your character to us so that when we want to follow your ways and be the disciples of Jesus that live out your love for other people, we can use those commands as direction that we joyfully um, use to point us toward loving our neighbor as ourselves because we are committed to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Strength. Thank you that this all happens under the grace and peace you have given us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, that's it for Dig Deeper. I want to thank you if you made it all the way. Thanks for listening to this. And, um, oh, look, at I just covered up the website. I encourage you to share this on Facebook or on YouTube or send the link to your friends. If it was good for you, uh, do that. I'm trying to control this thing here. Hang on. Where we go? Okay, there. Um, this is what I'm looking for. And if you want to uh, support what we do here with Dig Deeper or indeed with the entire ministry at Journey of Life, just go to journeyoflife.org. It's all one word, journeyoflife.org forward slash donate. And uh, you'll get to a page that takes you to a donation through the PayPal Giving Fund, which allows us to uh, receive donations online without paying any credit card fees at all. It's really quite a nice thing that they do. So with that being said, thank you for sticking with me to the end. It's my privilege to be able to bring this uh, dig deeper teaching to you. I wish you God's richest blessings and I pray that he'll continually open your mind so that as you dig deeper, deeper, you live deeper and you live more in love for God and your neighbor. Thank you for listening. God bless you. Bye-bye.